Do you remember when you were in ninth grade? Many people may feel judgmental about kids whose parents or other relatives are incarcerated, but should they? What is the potential of these kids? Stay tuned. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Do you remember when you were in the ninth grade? If you were at all like me, probably not. Who wants to remember feeling out of place, unsure about where you fit in, if you fit in at all, feeling alone, feeling less than, not one of the kids in that elusive in crowd, and you and I probably had what's called normal teen years. Now picture being in the ninth grade with one of your parents in the custody of the state, in prison, on top of all the normal tourists of being a young teen, imagine feeling as if you have to hide the truth about why your parent is absent from your life, shackled with extraordinary shame, resentment, loneliness, and self-doubt that you feel you must hide. How rare is this situation? Well, in this era of mass incarceration, it's not as rare as we prefer to think. The kids have done nothing wrong. But when a parent is subject to the penal system, they too become unintentional victims. For such a large percentage of kids in so-called normal situations, it's bad enough. Well, luckily there's a new tool which is beginning to address this hidden away problem. It's a movement around a new anthology called Advice to Ninth Graders, Stories, Poetry, Art, and Other Wisdom, in which Teens impacted by having parents in prison share their hurts, fears, dreams, and hopes through personal reflections and creative expression. And what are the implications for the country as a whole and democracy in specific by people feeling less than, by people feeling out of it, by kids feeling not included? Our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive today is Amy Friedman, co-founder of something called the Pops Club. That stands for Pain of the Prison System, which merged with the Pathfinder Club, Paving a Trail of Hope. Friedman is co-editor of the anthology that I referred to, along with Letitia Langoria Navarro and Victor Trio uh, Jr. Amy Friedman is an author and criminal justice advocate. She launched Pops the Club with her husband, Dennis Danziger, a writer and, te and high school teacher in 2013, as an inclusive space for youth who've been stigmatized and silenced by their experiences with the prison system. From a single club at Venice High School in Los Angeles, the Pops, Pops the Club has expanded to schools across the country. Why is such a book and a movement needed? What are we unintentionally doing to our kids? What is the unique role of art and creativity for children victims in these and other awful situations? Might this tool be applicable to other young teens trying to find their way? Amy Friedman, thanks for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. There must be an interesting story of how this anthology came about. What unmet need did it, does it seek to address? Please share that story with us. Yeah, and I want to just say thank you for that beautiful introduction. I sort of feel like you said it all. But um, but I, I can tell you the story of where both the organization came from and, um, and the idea for this anthology and some of the previous anthologies we've published, um, which 
This story started really over 30 years ago um, when I was a newspaper columnist and I I lived in a city in Canada um, that was surrounded by prisons and I realized I didn't know very much about prisons and I decided I wanted to go in and learn about them and learn how they impacted people and there's a really long story to this that I won't bore your listeners with but I ended up falling in love with a man who was in prison. We ended up getting married, and I ended up raising his daughters. Um, mm. Who, who he, he and I divorced after seven and a half years, but I've never divorced my daughters. And the one thing I discovered really quickly um, after we got married was the stigma that attaches to people who love people who are in prison. Um, and... You know, it, it's profound for adults, but it's really profound for kids. Mm. And as you pointed out in your introduction, um, that stigma, that shame, that that sort of feeling that you have to hide um, the truth about your life and and some of the things that you are enduring, and and also in a way that also hides your resilience, um, is affects the the. The stat is kind of startling. Um, in the United States, one in 14 children has a parent who is or has been incarcerated. And when when we started the organization, which I'll, I'll get to why, but um, we also, I just want to make clear that we also support kids who have other loved ones inside. So that includes siblings and aunts and uncles, boyfriends, girlfriends. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. So it's not lim so there's there's millions and millions. Um, the number I think around parents is over five million, um, and nobody's counted the the all the other impacts. You know the people who are impacted in other ways. But so my daughters were these beautiful, smart, amazing girls who. I used to joke, jokingly, sort of wryly, call them the world's best liars um, because <laughs> they just had learned from, they were really young when their father went to prison and they had learned, keep it quiet, don't let anyone know. And they'd also internalized this sense that there was something wrong with them as a result of his actions and um, incarceration. And also that if that they would be punished if people found out um and so i i have always been a writer and and i've also always been a truth teller which has also you know gotten me in trouble sometimes but yeah. it drove me crazy that they felt that they couldn't speak their truth right. and um so years passed, they grew up, they, and, and, you know, what I saw was the impact on them, on their, both their physical health and their mental health of just walking around carrying this secret, feeling like you're the only one, even though I knew they weren't, but no one talked about it. So they just felt like they were alone and the only people who were going through this. And, and so cut to, ex-husband and I divorced after seven and a half years. A few years passed, I end up falling in love with and marrying the man I'm still married to now, um, and moving to Los Angeles where he was um, a writer and a teacher. 
And um, I began going into his classrooms to work with kids through a, through a Pan America program that was called, yeah. um, oh gosh, Pen in the Classroom was called. And we would, I would work with kids on personal essay and memoir. And every time I walked into one of his classrooms, some kid would write something about, you know, a little story and I'd go, oh, well, where was your mom or where uh-huh. was your brother? And, and they'd sort of go, oh, just not around. And I'd say, prison? Um, and they'd, you know, kind of look at me like, she a witch? Um, but Dennis, my husband and I started talking really early on in the early 2000s about wanting to do something for all these kids because every class he taught, there were one, two, five, seven kids in his class who we discovered were impacted. Um, and there's a really long story to this, but there, basically what happened was one day we were talking about it and I had this little brainstorm and I just thought, you know, LGBTQ clubs have changed the face of the world for kids who are gay and transgender and bisexual and, you know, given them a space, why don't we start a club for kids impacted by incarceration? What a and, good idea. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a really good idea. We we found the man actually who started the first club for gay students in 1988 in the oh, U.S. Wow. in Connecticut. Um, I mean, sorry, in Massachusetts. And he sent me his little one-page proposal. We tweaked it for kids impacted by incarceration. We went to see Dennis's um, principal. Now I'll say this. Dennis said to me, you know she's going to say no, but don't be discouraged because we'll just find another school. And we went in for our meeting with her, showed her the proposal, and this tear sort of forms in her eye. And she says, my brother was incarcerated the the whole time I was growing up. And she said, yes. And we launched. So that was exactly 11 years ago. Um, One school... And I, I have to tell you my favorite little first day story um, because it, it explains a lot about what these clubs are like. Um, the very we, we had a couple rules. So rule number one, we were meeting during lunch because that was when all kids could it would be available to all kids. Um, because we were meeting during lunch hour, we had to provide food nobody had to say why they were there. So kids were welcome and they didn't have to come in and say, I'm here because my dad's in prison or whatever. They just had to come in and they were welcome. And it was a safe space. So first girl walks in the room, 10th grader, picks up her. Then in those days we were making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, picks up her peanut butter and jelly sandwich, sits down. Second girl walks in the room, another 10th grader. They look at each other across the room with this look I will never forget of utter shock because they had been close friends since kindergarten and there was one secret they had never told each other and that was that each of them had a father who was incarcerated and had and had been for years and they sort of flew into each other's arms and I Uh. looked over at Dennis and I said after when they told me what what was going on um I said to him, okay, we're going to 
launch a 501c3 and we're going to bring this to every school in America. <laughs> Not having a clue what I was saying, but um, but that was how it was born. Wow. Well, at least you knew it was a 501c3. That's important for fundraising. <laughs> maybe, maybe I knew that then. I'm not 100% sure. I might have just said nonprofit, but um, yeah. But then yeah. They, now they can, you know, obviously raise money and have a tax deductible. That's important. So right. I, I think, I can't help but think that a lot of people will be surprised that one in 14 kids have yeah. a, a, a parent never mind as you say an uncle or a cousin or somebody like that who's yeah. who's incarcerated is the trend going up staying the same or going uh, down it, my understanding so you know it took a long time before anybody was doing any studies on this population actually and sure. in 2016 there was a brilliant study one of the first that Annie Casey Foundation did, uh -huh. which is where the numbers came from. Um, my understanding from everything I, I know and from all the research going on is it is not going down. Um, we're insane. We, we, we lock up people willy-nilly. Yes. And, um, and we never think about the impact on their families. Um, and... Uh, or seldom, I should say. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, it, this this locking up business too. Although communities of color and poor communities are definitely over impacted, yeah. um, there there are I, we we went one time. We were invited to one of the posh private schools. I won't say the name in Los Angeles to do a presentation myself and some of the students from POPs for their community service kids. And I walked into the school and the librarian called me over and she said, you know what, Amy, we need this club here. I know at least 25 kids in this school who need this club, but the director won't let it be here because of the stigma of it being about incarceration. So it, it impacts way more people than we know. Um, and then we pay attention to. Yeah. Um, I, I can't yeah. imagine. I mean, we, as you say, you know, we do put an awful lot of people in prison behind bars. You know, the whole idea of penitentiary. Are people really doing penitence in there? It's, I mean, yeah. we, could, we could get into that whole discussion <laughs> yeah. about is it working? You know, but and that's just for the people who are behind bars and, you know, put in cages here. And our system of justice, and I use that uh, expression sort of lightly, uh, you know, yeah. is it really the system of justice? When it comes to the sentencing of offenders, do the courts factor it in when they're sent sentencing offenders? Mm -hmm. and, and should they? How could they? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I'm I'm not an expert on that. I, I when I lived in Canada and when I was when I was married to an incarcerated person, I had started another um, an, an organization up there that was more focused on lobbying on behalf of families, and we did do some lobbying work to Parliament in Canada um, about having families have a voice at the table. Mm around everything, you know, around programming and around visiting and around sentencing. And um, I have not been involved in, on that score down here. Um, and 
And so it, it's not really my area of expertise, but I will say that I, I just think it's not at the front of anybody's mind. Um, I, I think, you know, the impact of the people left behind and, and then the impact, this is another thing people never think about is the impact about reentry and what that does to families, yeah, you know, sure. uh, the, the kids we work with, you know, whenever someone's coming home, there's so much excitement and joy and, anticipation and you know it's not an easy road and and so there's there's also that kind of fallout from what has happened to the person while they were away and while they were inside and what's happened to the family and so it's a it's a complicated um but you know but I'm going to talk about the positive thing which is one of the reasons that we we publish this book and one of the reasons we public we have published a book every year since we were founded is that partially my husband and I are both writers so we believe in the power of the book um and so we wanted we wanted to have something tangible um and at the end of each year and and something that showed off who these kids really were um, they are they are so resilient and they're so smart and they're so knowledgeable and they have so much to say and who listens to teenagers right like hardly anybody so we we decided right from the start that we wanted to publish their writing every year um, that we were going to do really professional beautiful book and that we were going to get it out into the world through you know, shouting it out on shows like yours, Bert. And um, and the the impact has been really amazing. And a lot of a lot of writers and artists have kind of come out of the program. Uh, many of the kids, one of the things about making art out of one's pain is it's healing. Um, and then seeing yourself in print and being bragged about and being able to speak your truth yeah. is healing and strengthening. And I also have this sort of little semi-private concept of that we are creating activists because uh-huh. we're teaching them that not only do they not have to hide who they are, but they have so much knowledge that if they share it with the world, they're going to make a difference. And there are a lot of them, I mean, now we have some 26 and 7 and 8-year-olds who are doing some amazing stuff out in the world. Uh, I, can, um, I can imagine. And and coming from their voices, what could be more powerful than that? And for those who, who may have just tuned in, you may be wondering, what the heck are we talking about? We're, ta- <laughs> we're talking about uh, kids and and an new anthology about uh, kids whose parents or relatives are incarcerated and what that does for the kids and how it helps them and may help society and, and even, uh, you know, build democracy because everybody needs to feel like we're all on an equal plane in a democracy, at least in theory. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Amy Friedman, who is uh, author 
and criminal justice uh, activists. And a lot of these uh, young people are becoming criminal justice activists or activists in, in general. Maybe you can just, we, this is radio, so uh, I, I can't show one of the books here. What, what, would, I, what would I see by looking at these uh, anthologies? Um, yeah, I wish I could. So um, <laughs> you would see, first of all, every one of them. Well, so advice to ninth graders. Let me talk specifically about that one because it's the new one. And I also wanted to say that a, a year ago, um, Pops merged with this right. larger, beautiful organization called the Pathfinder Network that is based in Portland, Oregon. And I, I want to give a shout out to the executive director there, whose name is Leticia Longoria Navarro, who, mm-hmm. bless her heart, now I'm no longer having to be an executive director. And she's just brilliant and, and like, really an advocate. Um, she herself grew up with two parents who were incarcerated. And she knows this work inside out and has a heart bigger than the earth. Um, mm. and, um, and Vic Trillo, who is the program coordinator for all of the all of the clubs now um and they're they're just both of them vic himself had a father who was incarcerated and then he ended up going to prison he talks about how he went to prison because he always wanted to be with his dad um so he served a lot of time he's the coordinator with an equally humongous heart and this book, so this book is the first book out of this collaborative effort, Pops and the Pathfinder Club, um, and Advice to Ninth Graders. So the, so the idea was because we, we kind of had a book in the works when the merger happened, and we ended up with this tight deadline. And every year when we had done these books, we had there was one prompt we'd give kids that always elicited the most amazing stuff. And it was, what advice would you give yourself or another ninth grader? Yourself when you were in ninth grade or someone who's about to come into ninth grade? And they always wrote the best stuff. And so we thought, well, why don't we just do, like, since we have this tight deadline, let's give them a really easy prompt and we'll just write to that and paint and draw and do photographs. But they're so smart, these kids, that it it is a book that has some of it is just straight up advice. Like, okay, here's what you do. Here's how you like make your way around clicks. Here's how you deal yeah. with, you know, the bullies. Here's how you deal with all the homework you're gonna get, that kind of thing. Well, I could but use there's that. also <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But there's also poetry that is I, I just it, amazing. Um, their stories, their little essays. Their the some of the kids are such brilliant artists. So there's all kinds of pieces of art. One of one of my favorites is there's a photograph called Biased Comparisons. It's a picture of this you know, one of the young women, and she took a photograph of herself in the mirror. And this, it's just, I don't know how to describe it, but it's just this. You know, here I am looking at myself, and I'm seeing myself wrong, basically. Um, so there's there's just all this beautiful art, and always the cover is um, designed around a piece of art that one of the students does. So this one is by a young woman named Vita Muller, who is a student in 
in Portland at Park Rose School, high school. And uh, it's this bright, happy, kind of sunshiny, like people happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it? I, when we when we started the first club, the first cohort of kids selected the name Pops, um, pain of the prison system because they wanted the concept of pain to be included. But the the meetings, the space when you're with the kids in these clubs, it's so happy, it's so joyful and kind of safe and calming and connected and all and i would say like the art mostly reflects that um so the so you open it up and there's just incredible writing incredible artwork um the back of it in the back of the book we have the bios that each of the kids writes their own bios so some of them are real straight and some of them are really creative (laughs) um and yeah it's just um, and I I think it's the kind of book, though the intention in some ways was for it to be for ninth graders, a lot of the adults that have read it have said, oh, man, there's things I learn in this. Um, and I think that has happened with every one of our every one of our books that um, they sort of kids love them because they're speaking to uh-huh themselves um i mean they eat them up they're like candy and but adults are really surprised to be so moved as they have been by them well i i do uh, you know quite a few interviews with authors of books and generally you know the books are available at bookstores and you know online all over the place uh, and i n- never really ask how can people get this book is this book yes. available in regular it, old bookstores Online? Um, you know, it's absolutely available online. It's in bookstores here and there, but if I, I, I don't think it's probably in a bookstore in New Hampshire. But um, well, this goes if, everywhere, Oregon as well as Washington, whatever. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, okay. You, but I, if I try to name the bookstores, I'll be wrong. Right. So I'm not going <laughs> to okay. do that. But um, there, there are a few different links to go to. If you go to um, popsclubs.org. And there's a at the top. There's a drop down menu that says books, and all the links are in there for for this book and all the others. And the other place is outofthewoodspress.com, which is the publisher. Ah, uh-huh. out of the, <laughs> I love that title. And out I will tell you, press. I I have a little bit of history in this field in that I am a long term member of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, and one of the projects. Oh wow. Yeah, uh, so one of the projects supported was called They Still Draw Pictures. It was children's illustrations of the bombing of their communities by the Germans in the Spanish Civil War. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah, it's but kids, kids of other human created disasters use art as a unique healing tool. Uh, yes. Tell us about the unique value you've observed, you've observed from kids creating artwork in addition to ex- to expressing their feelings verbally. What, what's so special about artwork? You know, I think that, I think a lot of times, I, I tell you, we, we started out when, when people heard books, I could see sometimes on kids' faces, like, oh, 
gosh, I'm not a writer. You know, I, I could just see that look in their eyes, you know? Sure. And so we we sort of made it a point, and we also we bring in guest speakers and visitors about various things. So we, we also bring in working artists and working writers. And um, and so we, we just sort of said, well, you know, like if, if art is your thing, then use, use that, use that to tell your story. And it was like, bang, you know, just the world opened up and oh my gosh, some of the, some of the artists that we've come across have just, they blow my mind. They really do. There's, there's two kids who I know really well because they were in the Venice club early on and they've both, they're both um, now graduates of art school and making a living doing their art. Wow. Um, they just, you know, so, so I think, I think that, that people tell stories in the ways they can tell stories. And some people tell them by drawing or by photographing or by making collage or, um, you know, any number of ways. And, and it is still storytelling. And uh, yeah, just the, the expression of art being able to, I can imagine kids saying, I can't write, yeah, but they can draw pictures. They can draw pictures and, and, and communicate it that way. And there's a certain freedom that there is in art, uh, even for us so-called adults. Why does the anthology, this new anthology, focus on ninth graders in specific? Um, well, the, the place, most of the clubs are in high schools. And we, we intentionally, when we launched the program, we intentionally chose high schools because it's that time in life when kids start to begin to sort of step outside their small little circles, kind of step outside their neighborhoods. You know, they go to a school where there's people from more neighborhoods and it's bigger and they're a little older and they start kind of defining themselves outside of, of the context of that you know, just your family. And and so we thought it's hard in some ways to step into the room the first time, right? When you don't know what to expect. And so we, we thought, okay, well, we'll do high schools. Now we have since expanded to some middle schools, but <clears throat> what we saw really early on was kids who were in 10th, 11th and 12th grade and, and beyond actually, had much more confidence and it was much easier for them to walk into the room and much easier for them to kind of start talking about who they were and what they were experiencing. The ninth graders were, oh my gosh, like I'm still dealing with trying to navigate this new universe that I'm walked into, right? And and so that prompt of what advice would you give a ninth grader or what advice would you give yourself for when you were a ninth grader? really elicited a lot of emotion from kids. And um, I, I think it's just because of the, the work that they poured out that was really about like what to tell a kid. I, I just remember one from years ago, somebody wrote about what do you do when you're standing in the hall and everybody's kind of moving into their little click corners? Mm. Where do you go? Mm. And she wrote about how to figure out where to go. And I thought, well, what genius is that? You know, because who's who's thinking about? I mean, we all feel like that our whole lives, I think. But but in ninth grade, it's particularly poignant. It's um, you're trying to be a grown up, and you're still kind of a kid. And 
So that's the, it, it really did come from the kids having poured up, poured so much energy into that prompt. Um, okay. And some of the eighth graders. So this book contains some advice from seventh, so I think seventh and eighth graders also. And they, so they, their advice is more about like really what they want to hear, what they want people to tell them. Um, and you can kind of feel it in the writing, you know, um, but, but they're thinking about it. Um, they're thinking about what is, what's it going to be like when I step out of this comfort zone where I'm the big kid and I have to be the little kid again. Yeah, it's a tough period, even, you know, for us people who uh, didn't have any relative incarcerated. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a unique aspect of keeping democracy alive, and that's kids whose relatives, parents are incarcerated. And it's we're focusing on a, a new book, Advice to Ninth Graders, Stories, Poetry, Art, and Other Wisdom. Uh, with uh, its uh, editor, uh, I suppose. Is that your title, Amy Friedman? It is my title, yes. Oh, my <laughs> yes. goodness. It must be interesting. <laughs> and I can, you know, having had kids myself, um, it's it's tough. It's tough. And sometimes, you know, I, 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 I'm curious about how, you know, there's this emotional turbulence that comes with adolescence no matter what, where, right. you know. And sometimes... It's true, especially these days, I think, and I've heard about uh, uh, self-harm, that kids, if they, you know, don't feel good about themselves and, and you know, they, they don't fit in, whatever. And in what ways is, is this, uh, does it help what, what you're doing, what, the, what these books are, uh, help channel the outrage into something other than self-harm or, or violence lashing out at other people? Yeah, you know what? I'm really glad you asked me that because so a few things. What for for because I've been doing this now for 11 years or really much longer because of my own kids, you know. But um I I anecdotally I could always tell like how things were changing for kids. Um and and so because this was a nonprofit, we were also trying always to get data to back up our claims. Um, anecdotally, I can say I've just watched, I've watched kids who didn't come to school because um, they hated it because they were so depressed or because they were so stoned or because their gang didn't come or um, who loved the club so much they always came on the day the club met. Huh. And then, oh, then they met kids in the club who, like, were there and they became their friends. And so they started coming a little more. And, you know, it just sort of changed the atmosphere of school, which is the other reason we wanted to have it in schools, um, that it wasn't a, a daunting place where you had to hide. Um there are kids who were like completely uninterested in school who some guest speaker would come in just any person like from any walk of life and talk about something that just remember a guy came in who runs a boxing gym and he told the story and he's this really popular guy in town and his gym's the most popular gym in town and he's real handsome and shiny you know and and i remember he starts talking about his father being incarcerated 
And this one of the boys in the class, like he decided, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a gym. I'm going to do what he did. You know, it just, you can see the the light bulb go go off. Um, Kids who didn't have any idea what they wanted to do. I know three kids right now who are in law school or about to go to law school who are in law school and going to law school because of what happened to them in POPs and what they learned. Um, So there was always that anecdotal evidence um about not about a year and a half ago um uh, a team from um the cal Cal state university northridge um led by this great amazing public health professor whose name is dr miriam forster um got an nih grant to study the impact of pops and the pathfinder club on these kids Uh and so they're they're it's a three or four year study i'm not sure which i should know but um and they're in in going into their second year and what i know so far is that there's there's two there's a lot of things they've they've discovered but one two really important pieces one is that as a rule the kids entering the club come in way behind their peers on all sorts of mm. scores like attendance and grades and so on and so on within 6 months of being in the club they're equal to their peers on all these data points. Mm. So the study is is already, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of in its infancy, but it's already showing how impactful the work is. Um, and I I think that that I always felt in my bones that it would be because when I was raising my girls, you know, and I would say to them, hey, listen, you're not the only ones in the school and you have nothing to be ashamed of and you've never done anything wrong and you guys are so brilliant and great and I don't want you to carry around this burden. But they didn't believe me. I was their parent, uh, right? Yeah. Who believes their parents? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, you know, and so they just sort of rebelled against that, even that idea. But in the clubs, you're hearing this from your peers, you're hearing it from teachers, you're hearing it from all these visitors who come in, you're hearing it from the volunteers who are helping to lead the club, you're hearing the same messages that you can ignore from a parent, Um, and that it's just pretty hard to ignore when you're hearing it from so many people. And then when you write something and it's published in a book, or when you get to a be on an interview or you get to, we, we've done um, book launches um, on stages across, across the country, really. Um, then, you know, suddenly it's a whole different story. Suddenly you, you understand that, Hey, you know what? I really do have something to say. And that, that empowerment, that, that sense of like, I really am not alone and I have a lot to teach the world is, is exists. Um, so I think I answered your question. Yeah, I think so too. And, and, uh, you know, focusing on an issue like this is what you're doing that can, uh, you know, in general help find answers to what the issues are, what the problems are. If you don't, you know, if it's, if, if it's, 
nebulous out there and you don't know what it is but have, having being able to, to to focus on this i can see how that can uh help kids become stronger and more resilient because you realize i mean every, i think every kid feels like you know sort of less than and disempowered or not every kid but a lot of kids and whereas a lot this, of kids. yeah, yeah. They, they, they can help them become you know like hey i can do this i can do that that's i, I want to go back a little bit to what the you know what what people's in general sense of uh kids of specifically parents who are in jail or in prison mm -hmm. uh what the beliefs are do they is there yeah and and what the, the teachers the guidance counselors uh what's what's yeah. what's their shtick what you know what, yeah. what issues yeah, do they it's a, have it's a great question uh, i and i and it reminds me of a story i have to tell you please do. which is i remember when i was married to a man who was in prison mm -hmm. and i was um raising the girls and they were still really young and i remember going with them once to some kind of um i i don't remember what the meeting was for but it was a meeting of like really good people like the the democracy fighters right? like uh -huh. the people who were fighting for democracy really? and and we were sitting in this room and i remember these two social workers started talking about how hard how sad it is that kids with incarcerated family members are more likely themselves to go to prison mm. and i was in a rage because for one it's a it's a false statistic yeah. um for another it's a statistic that implies it implies things about the parents of people who are incarcerated not much less their their siblings or their spouses um i mean there there's just so much kind of um this false negative belief about about the whole family system you know and and such a a tarring of of like a whole a whole sea of people um and mm. what what happened at venice so this was really interesting for us um because that was the first club and and because my husband was so day-to-day -day involved with it we we were able to watch really up close and personal as one by one by one the teachers in that school changed so there had been teachers who, you know, there's always the teachers, and I don't mean to demean anybody, but there's always the teachers who only will teach like the AP kids, mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. and they just had no time for the others, mm -hmm. <laughs> put that in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not that children of the incarcerated aren't, aren't sometimes the AP kids too, but, but it there were there were there were these the sea of teachers who were like oh this club is for those kids those kids like for those kids right and after i'm going to say like a year and a half two years they started to come to the meetings and they would hear the kids and they would listen to them and they would see these books and they were blown away mm. like they couldn't believe it and it changed them like one after another after another after another it changed them so that 
after some years, now it's been at Venice now for, it's in its 11th year, and the the whole culture of that school around the the experience of family incarceration is different than once it was. You know, people would put, see kids coming out of that meeting and they'd be laughing and having a great time and they just had a meal and they had these books they published and they'd be like, can I come even though I don't have anybody? <laughs> it just like became, instead of becoming the like the downtrodden and the other, it became the cool place. Oh my the cool God. kids, the kids who, who had done all this amazing stuff and who had these challenges that look what they're doing. They, they're dealing with going to, having to go to prisons to visit family. And if you've ever done that, I mean, it is not fun. Um, and, and they're dealing with, you know, sometimes I remember one young woman in the early days, she had a brother who had been arrested when she was 14. This is another, actually one, one of my other fav- favorite stories. She came, she was dragged to Pops by a friend of hers because she was so humiliated by the fact that her brother was in prison. And this friend of hers made her come. And she came the first day and I was there and we were doing a prompt. And I and I went over to her and I said, and she looked at us like when when whoever was leading the prompt said, take out your paper and, you know, if you want to write, here's the prompt. And she looked at us like, are you crazy? I'm not putting something in writing. And I went over to her and I introduced myself and I told her a little bit about myself. And and then I said, hey, listen, um, she said, she sort of cried and she said, yeah, my brother's in prison and he's got a ridiculous 29-year sentence. And... Um, and I miss him, and but I'm really mad at him, and I haven't spoken to him, to him since he went to prison, which was then maybe like a year and a half or two years. And I said, well, you know, maybe you could write him a letter that you're not going to send. You know, just think about it. Like, maybe you probably have stuff you want to say to him. She came back a week later with seven pages that she had written and that she sent and that reconnected them to each other. And a couple like months later, I got a letter from him thanking me for creating this space for his sisters. It just like transformed the family. Um, and, yeah, and I, I, uh, that's quite a story. You must have a lot of stories, and I can't. I can feel the emotion that you must feel from t- fairly often on this because this is big stuff. This is heavy stuff. It's really hard for the kids, but it's, you know, and and seeing the progress, the belief in themselves, and having other kids yes. want to join their club, that's great stuff. And I can imagine, you know, among the the wider community that there's easy judgments that can be made. You know, the people can be judgmental. I know that causes yes. a shock to you. Really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the criminality, the idea that the criminality is like hereditary, like an infection that can be passed down. And right. It, right. It, it's, it's, it's not that way at all. And, you know, as we've mentioned before, kids in general, I think, probably the majority of kids feel isolated. What, what, how can these clubs for otherwise isolated kids, what do they provide that otherwise would not be there for these kids that makes it attractive to other kids who's, you know, don't have relatives incarcerated? 
Yeah, and and I, I mean that's a great question too. And there are kids who come to the clubs who do, who are not personally impacted. Often they first come to support a friend. Um, sometimes they come because they're kind of you know young activists who want to know what they can do about the the prison industrial complex. You know, mm-hmm. um, that I I want to say too because I haven't thrown this in but we also um there are a lot of kids we serve who are also children of of parents who've been deported mm-hmm. so detained and then deported so mm-hmm. like there have been a lot of kind of immigrant activist kids who come um because they want to show their support i i think what happens to them is the same thing that happens to the kids who are impacted, which is, it's a place they like to be. People are really nice to each other. My my husband always says, he says, he tells kids, you come to Pops and I guarantee you, somewhere along the way, you're going to hear something, see something, find out something that you're not going to find out any other way in school. Uh-huh. So, so that's part of these, you know, guest speakers, like, we we had um, we've had over the years a number of people who were Innocence Project exonerees come in and speak, uh-huh. um, and you know they hear some amazing stories. It's it's part of what inspired some of these lawyers to be. Um, they've heard from parole officers who've come in. They've and and so they get this opportunity to to kind of go outside of day-to-day life and um, learn more about their, their wider world around them. Um, and they're, and they're, you know, we, we, because we don't ask kids, um, you don't have to, you don't have to like show your, show your credentials as the child of an incarcerated parent to come in. Um, you kind of never know. And there, there've been frequently kids who are there for four years saying they're there to support a friend who later we find out, oh, and, mm-hmm. oh, and by the way, my mom's inside, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, like, you don't, you don't always know. Well, as people often say, yeah, asking for a friend. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> really right. For, right. For themselves. And what about, I can imagine, well, you can tell us. And, oh, I should, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, I do get carried away with this. It's such interesting stuff we're talking about. Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Amy Fridman, an author and criminal justice advocate, who activist, I should say, who, and we're talking about a new uh, anthology, Advice to Ninth Graders, Stories, Poetry, Art, and Other Wisdom. It's about uh, teens impacted by having a relative... Uh, a loved one uh, behind bars. What about, what can these young people teach both adults and younger children about the impacts Mm. of incarceration? Yeah, you know, some of these kids, I mean, well, I think we can learn a lot. I think we learn a lot about really what, what it's like kind of to visit to um, the financial impacts of having somebody who's incarcerated, the emotional impacts, the the just the day to day grind of dealing with it, um, the the loss one feels, the mm. the 
Um, sometimes, you know, every family is different. Um, there are kids who come who live with a custodial parent who does not allow them contact with the incarcerated parent Ooh. or um, that that happens. Um, and those kids still feel the loss of that per- person. And so where they can't talk about it and, and feel their sorrow at home, they can feel it in the club and, and get solace. Um, and so I think part of what they have to teach us is, is what the landscape is like of this carceral system mm. that we have created. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that they are able to speak about it in such um, like unfettered ways. You know, I, I would say that about the books that, you know, we, we grown ups learn how to kind of behave ourselves and, and not, you know, not always gush, although I think I'm gushing a little bit, but um, but they they don't censor themselves. Once they feel free to speak, they really speak truthfully, and and I think that is just profoundly impacting for all of us to hear. Well, I, I there's there's a story that always kicks around in my brain that a young woman wrote one time about. Um, her visits to go see her father who had been inside since she was three. And this was, she was about 16 or 17 by then. And, and how horrible it was for her to like, you can't have a wire bra, you know, and you can't wear this and you can't wear that. And this color is not allowed. And how awful it was to be this 16 year old girl being eyed. So with such scrutiny by a guard, and, and what that felt like, you know, how demeaning and horrible it felt. And all she wanted to do was go see her father. Um, I think that it's, it's hearing things like that that changes people and changes our understanding of what, what that experience is. Um, the, other, the other thing I want to say is I think these kids have also, I know these kids have also taught their incarcerated loved ones a lot. Um, there's, there's, um, this will happen. Like a dad will come home after many years away and dad wants to be boss of the house again. And here's this kid who's been on his or her own for, you know, a decade or more. And, and they don't really want a boss who's been the kind of cause of some of their problems. And a lot of our kids have like taught their parent who they are and how much they went through and what that experience was for them through their writings, through being empowered to say truthfully how they felt. When you love somebody who's inside, it's so hard to be inside that one of the things that happens to you is you do censor your own feelings about the impact on you because you don't want them to feel bad. Mm. And so these kids end up like taking care of that incarcerated family member. And, and it's important for those people to know the truth of, of the impact too. And I think it, it affects the, the way they think about how they're going to behave going forward. 
And we'll go from the specific to the general here. This show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. And in other non-democratic cultures, there are stratifications uh, of citizens built in. You know, not everyone is treated equally, for sure. Some people are, you know, seen perhaps as better than others. That can happen in a lot of societies. But in democracy, there's supposed to be, supposed to be a sense of everyone being valued as equals. What is the unique role of the anthology and Pops and Pathfinder in reinforcing essential principles of a democratic society? Well, that these kids are your equal. And what Mm -hmm. they have to say is really important for you to hear. And, um, and, And it's important also for them to know that they are everyone's equal. and that their voices are important and their visions are important. So I I think that's like the bottom line of it. And the kids must feel really good about, I I can only imagine being published, you know, and and being, you know, able to join, you know, like other kids wanting to join these clubs and being published on there and and having their poetry, their writing, their art published. That's got to be kind of a a boost to their sense of uh, identity. They get pretty excited when they ha- when they're holding the book in their hands. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And the ones who didn't submit work to be published, somehow the next year when they see their friend holding their uh, book and going, "Look at my piece," the next year they're submitting. Right? So oh, how it, it inspires others too. How incredibly healthy that is! I must I must say. So just to remind people, if people want to get a hold of this uh, this new book, "Advice to Ninth Graders: Stories, Poetry, Art, and Other Wisdom." How can they get it? It's available on on just about every um, web, uh, every uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the indie oh, book sites. But you can go to Pops Clubs, P O P S Clubs, C L U B S dot org, and click on books, and there'll be links, or to outofthewoodspress.com, and there's a link that says buy, and you can see where to buy it. Out of the, uh, that's I wanted to get that in there. Out of the woods. That's such a good title for a book publisher. Out of the woods press. Yeah, well, yeah. Thank you so much for being with us today on keeping democracy alive. This is an important uh, issue that uh, you know we try to dig up issues that uh, are not you know the normal normal uh, issues that people focus on uh, to try to improve to. Uh, make our democracy even better. Amy Friedman, thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy. Really? And thank you for the work that you do, I must say. Thank you. And thank you for the work you do. I really appreciate the opportunity. Nice to meet you and all of you. All right. (laughs) Okay. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. 
And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.